0: It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Olivia Rosenman, and today we're broadcasting from the Walkley's annual journalism conference, Storyology, with a special panel I hosted on Thursday on investigative journalism with a distinguished panel of four top investigative journalists from around the world. The world is full of problems. It always has been, that's nothing new, but what has changed in recent years is the willingness and indeed the ability of big news organisations to pay for the long and expensive investigations. So today we're going to talk about that problem. We'll be asking our distinguished panel here, how they decide where to dig and which tip-offs are likely to lead somewhere and if the end always does have to justify the means. I'm joined here on the stage by Aaron Glantz, senior reporter with Reveal from the US Centre for Investigative Reporting, the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Jared Ryle, Kate McClymont, senior journalist with Fairfax Media and the founding editor of The Wire in India, Siddharth Varadarajan. So our time is short today, and we'll be covering a lot of their biographical information over the course of the conversation, so I'm not going to waste your time reading that out. It's all there in the program as well. I just want to jump right in. And Kate, I'll start with you. In your 27 years at the Sydney Morning Herald, you've built an extremely strong reputation investigating local issues. And I can only imagine that anyone with some juicy info about something going on here in Sydney would have you at the top of their list of journos to contact. So I'm interested to know, How many tip-offs do you receive, let's say, on a week-to-week or month-to-month basis? And of those, how many do you follow up? How many actually end up leading somewhere? And how many are you just simply unable to follow up due to a lack of time or resources?
1: I think I get about five per day. And I'm finding increasingly, um, as our newspaper organisation, as the, the, the amount of journalists shrinks the more people come to you with their story ideas. And of those, I would say maybe one out of 30 is any good. And, you know, you know like yesterday someone sent me an email saying, I want to know if the Sydney Morning Herald would write something about, um, you know, one of its sponsors. And you go, uh, yes, I'm sure we would. Well, can you speak to your editor about it? And finally I just said, look, can you please get to the point? Tell me what the story is. Because um, often people just, you know, meander around and you just think, look, just tell me, just give me the nugget of what the story is and I can say yes, no or more information, please. But you do find that um, a large proportion of your day now is dealing with people's information and you don't know until you talk to them whether it's going to be good or not. Although, having said that, when anyone uses random capitals (laughs) or uses red biro or quotes a psalm or any biblical reference (laughs) of any kind, you know they're
2: nuts.
0: (laughs) So are there any tip-offs in your recent memory that you regret not having followed up?
1: Look, I did get... um, uh, one earlier this year, telling me to look at the um, the water issues in the Murray-Darling Basin. And I said, look, I, I, look, that just sounds fantastic, but we just don't have the resources at the moment to look at that. And then Linton Besser from Four Corners does a fantastic story with that information. And you do think, hmm. But having said that, I think some stories do work really well on television. And trying to tell the same kind of story... Uh, and trying to get a word picture across of the, the huge nature of the, the the water resources and dams and things like that, sometimes you think actually that did work much better where it ended up.
0: Siddharth, how does that number of tip-offs per day compare with what you receive at the wire?
3: Uh, no, I can't say it's five, five a day at all. Um, it would be more like um, 10 or 12... Reasonably sou- reasonable sounding tips a month. Um, readers write in with suggestions. So I'm not classifying that as a as a as a tip. Uh, I would say a tip is when somebody, in uh, typically a whistleblower of some kind or the other, uh, reaches out and suggests that we look at something.
1: Now that's uh, a good tip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah so I'm, I'm
3: essentially and, and but you know very often they're not uh, they're not in a. In a position to provide any documentation, uh, and we have, we've had until now a reasonably robust right-to-information system, which the current government, uh, building on the reluctance of its predecessor to share information, has effectively, um, you know, sought to undercut. So, uh, typically, you know, three or four years ago, if you if you got a tip-off and the person giving the uh, tip didn 't have information you could you could craft a proper set of questions uh, and send it to the to the several government departments and eventually get something out in a month or two. Today, that process has become uh, virtually impossible so uh, short of cultivating particular sources and actually getting hold of, inf- of information, uh, those kinds of tips are very hard to follow uh, and we are also in an environment today where um, the government is actively discouraging. Um, people from, you know, so people in, in, in government from even dealing with journalists on a day-to-day basis. So uh, there's a lot more caginess on the part of those in the know. And uh, companies are also increasingly res- are resorting to slap suits of one kind or the other. So the environment for this kind of reporting is uh, becoming more difficult in India.
0: Aaron, is there a limit to how long a reporter at Reveal can spend with a tip-off or a hunch without getting anything concrete before they just have to move on?
4: Well, I mean, I wouldn't think of it exactly in those terms. Uh, you might just back burner it, you know. So we have to be productive, right? We have to get stuff done. But there's also a, you know, there's like a two-year investigation that I might do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm only working on that for two years. Uh, I have found that there's a lot of natural waiting involved in investigative journalism. So, for example, uh, one of the biggest stories that I've done has been about the... Um, Uh, overuse of narcotics by our Department of Veterans Affairs, and we ended up making a tremendous impact there. Uh, And now uh, that problem has actually been largely solved thanks to our work. And in December of 2014, I got this fantastic tip from this former worker in a VA hospital saying that the uh, chief of staff of this particular Veterans Hospital was being called the Candyman, uh, and that the veterans called the hospital Candyland and that he was, and these are his words, zombifying his patients. And he had a lot of all-caps. Um, you're just cruelly my no, 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 and No, but this is actually like a related point, which is read past the all-caps. Yeah. yeah, and just kind of skim, and sometimes even if the person, this person was totally nuts, but <laughs> that didn't mean that he didn't have something, sure. yeah. right? So then I said, Ryan, what is this about zombifying? Can you give me anything else besides your rant? And then I just kind of went back to work. Two weeks later, he leaks me an internal uh, audit of this hospital that had been buried by the federal government right? And then I'm often running on my investigation. So I think that uh, giving your tipsters homework um, yes. is very important in terms of you assessing if it is a good tip. And also uh, kind of like not making you so bogged down that your editor walks around and says, "Aaron, you've been working on this for a long time. Maybe you should produce something.
1: And you do. Sometimes you have to say to people, um, could you give me five bullet points of what you say your claim is? Because often when people ring up, they get agitated and they try to tell you and you just say, just stop for a moment. Just pretend that you're telling a relative. What is it that is exciting you about this? And then the next question is, and do you have documents? Mm.
0: All right, well, speaking of documents, Jared, the Panama Papers leak was one of the biggest in the biggest data leaks in history, 11.5 million documents. 2.6 2.6 terabytes of information. I wonder if you are able to quantify how much time and effort and how much investment went first into working out how much of a story was actually buried in that ocean of data.
5: Oh, we're still working on it now, two years later. But um, I think the first thing you got to do when you do get a tip-off is, is trying to establish whether or not it's true, I think. And that's a very simple point, but it actually is often forgotten by journalists. Um, in terms of, like... In terms of getting tip-offs, my rule is always, like, you've gotta, it's got to be something that is of general interest to everybody because often you're, you're, the people that come to you are obsessed by a topic. And because they're obsessed by the topic, they think everyone's interested in it, whereas, in fact, often um, it's of no general interest at all. So I think it's very important to interrogate the sources to make sure that what they're telling you is of more general interest. Wh- you know, again... Never say no to information, I think, is the biggest lesson for the Panama Papers because we know that the John Doe who gave the information eventually to the German newspaper who gave it to us had actually shopped that material around to some very major news organisations before he finally found the Germans. So, again, never say... I remember years ago when I was working at the Age newspaper, this guy contacted us who claimed that there'd been this secret unit inside the Victoria Police and you know that he was a secret agent essentially for them, riding around in a motorbike with a with a radio at the back. This is back in the old days, and he was basically enrolled as a student at a university undercover for the Victoria Police. It sounded insane. It turned out to be completely true. And I think the lesson there is that you need to listen to everyone who comes to you and do your work at that point. But like Kate says, most of them are insane, unfortunately. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yes. Yeah.
0: Siddharth, you've written that for good journalism to survive and thrive, it needs to be both editorially and financially independent. And indeed, that's the structure that you've established at The Wire, which you founded in 2015. Now, before that, you had a substantial career in the traditional newspaper industry, including a stint as the editor-in-chief of The Hindu. So can you tell us a little bit about how those editorial and financial relationships constrained or interfered with investigations while working in the newspaper environment? OK.
3: Well, uh, at the, Hin- the Hindu is, uh, I-, I was the editor for a little over two years. <laughs> it's it's uh, in many ways a unique paper in the Indian media landscape because even though it's privately owned, like all, all newspapers are, uh, the family is, uh, how should I put it, not very ambitious or greedy. So they're quite satisfied with uh, a level of profit that, other, that would frustrate other newspaper owners, and they're not chasing after easy or quick money. Uh, this paper was traditionally, was always run by this, edited by the family. And uh, they received professional advice in the context of infighting within the family, that they needed to uh, tap somebody from outside to run the, run the show. And that's how, how I became editor. Uh, during the time I was editor, uh, I faced zero interference from them. Uh, in terms of so I actually had a uh, I was in the unique position of being able to do a whole range of stories that the paper never did earlier. Uh, this was when the Congress party was in power, so we did major stories exposing uh, dodgy land deals involving Sonia Gandhi's uh, son-in-law. Uh, we uh, tracked the role of senior ministers in a major telecoms scam uh, that was unfolding at that time. Uh, we tracked the role of um, the manner in which India's largest company, Reliance Industries, uh, was essentially um, gold-plating a joint venture with the uh, government for on gas production, uh, costing the exchequer billions of uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, these were these were stories that were available for every other paper to do. Actually, uh, the person shopping the. Oil and gas documents, for example, was knocking on everybody's door, but because of the influence of Reliance, no newspaper wanted to touch them. As editor of the Hindu, in a situation where I knew the publishers didn't care, uh, you know, I, I was I had a free hand to run those. The irony is that once. Then the, the 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 fight the feuding family patched up and I was on I was stuffed out <laughs> because they said you know but I was toughed out because of uh, because of the kind of journalism that I was doing they just said hang on a minute we'd we'd rather have his job right so so I was I was out and uh, it so happened that the political climate in the country also changed so a lot of those investigations uh, the Hindus stopped doing uh, but by and large I would say the environment in India is such today that uh, the lack of financial independence, or should I say, the over-dependence of uh, editorial on, uh, you know, proprietors who make money, uh, you know, from multiple businesses, uh, many of which are vulnerable to government, you know, um, uh, shall we say, you know, uh, you haven't signed that form or you haven't got that clearance. Uh, There's ways of putting pressure on on media houses, and uh, the government is itself getting increasingly intolerant of criticism. Big companies are uh, you know, more likely to slap suits than in, in, in the past. Uh, so this has kind of you know, had, a, had a, a terrible effect on uh, investigative reporting, but I would say critical reporting of any kind. A lot of, a lot of the best stories that we've done in the work because we're a small team, we maybe eight or nine journalists actually full-time, and then lots of you know, uh, contributors and freelance writers. And we sponsor a lot of investigations done by people that we trust who are not formally part of our organization. But the best stories that we've done are investigative pieces that, are, that were hiding in plain sight. You know, uh, they, these were stories that were there for everybody to do, but because of a, a political sensitivity involved, or because nobody wanted to knock uh, a, a particular, you know, corporate house, say. Uh, newspapers and TV channels just ch- chose not to do those. And we've, you know, we've had great success doing them. We've also, unfortunately, in two years collected four, um, for defamation suits running into hundreds of millions of dollars, including from a certain Mr. Adani, who you, who you yeah. know and love. Um, uh, so so that's, uh, I guess, the occupational hazard.
0: Kate, you touched on this before, but what has your been your experience? Have you ever had an investigation cancelled or limited due to editorial or financial interest at Fairfax?
1: Um, no, and I, I think it's what Siddharth was saying as well, is that Traditionally, the, um, the Fairfax newspaper has not had other business interests. It hasn't had interests in, in, in gambling or in um, you know, other areas of commerce, which means that um, there have been times in the past where major advertisers in the paper have threatened to pull their advertising and have done so, not because of any of my stories. But they're the kind of pressures that journalists... I mean, and usually the editors keep that from the journalists um, at the time. There hasn't been any pressure not to do this because we're about to lose um, advertising. Um, So, you know, and I think that's one of the joys of working for an organisation like that is that they tend to um, back you... You know very well, and I I couldn't work freelance um, just because of what Siddhartha was saying. It's about the legal costs. Just about every single story that I do, I'm on sort of like auto dial to our in-house lawyer to run by. Um, you know the implications. You know maybe tweak a word here, a word there, and I couldn't do that if I was working by myself. So. I think investigative journalism, sadly, you still need a powerful organisation to back up your work. Aaron,
0: Reveal is part of the Centre for Investigative Reporting, which is a not-for-profit that lives within the public radio ecosystem. So I imagine that there are fewer external interests or relationships that might cause an interference. But I'm sure there's still pressure for a story to be worth the investment. So what happens when you come across a story that is a story, but that only affects a really small or a tiny group of people? How much do you have to weigh up the expense of the investigation with the potential impact?
4: Well, luckily, I'm not in charge of the budget. I just am in charge of spending the budget as a reporter. Um, but uh, you know, I think that uh, I personally, in my work, I always ask myself, um, how many people does this story affect? You know so with the narcotics coverage that I was mentioning earlier, you're talking about three million American veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and hundreds of thousands of them are being overmedicated and dying uh, at an alarming rate because of the drugs that our government is prescribing. So uh, that's a wrong that if we fix it, a lot of people will be helped, right? And I'm always looking for stories like that that um, that are not about one person doing wrong or two people doing wrong, but but something where um, you know if if we have a successful impact, if the story lands properly, that it will be worth everyone's time. But you know, my bosses also like stories that are just great stories, and um, you know, for example, one of the big issues in the U.S. Uh, is sexual assault and the fact that uh, women frequently cannot get the perpetrators of sexual assault uh, prosecuted. And we had a fantastic story last year that won many awards where it was this one woman who had been sexually assaulted, who happened to be a journalist, who investigated why her own assault wasn't being perpetrated. So she put her considerable investigative talents to work on investigating her own case. and. Uh, you know it had a tremendous uh, impact with the audience in a different way which is that a lot of people understood this issue in a way that they never had before
0: Jared I want to talk about the impact of technology on investigative journalism prior to joining the ICIJ in 2011 you spent 20 years working as an investigative reporter which takes us back to the early days of the internet. Now compare that to the Panama Papers, uh, which involved one of the largest largest data drops in history, a year-long collaboration between 370 journalists and their respective news organisations around the world, and uh, proprietary technology to process that data. So how much has technology made large-scale investigations easier and cheaper, or has it just made it more complicated and more expensive?
5: I think of all of, all of the above, but I think that we're, um, you know, for me, it's about bringing Uh, opportunity. I mean, all our our industry is basically being killed by technology. You know, the business models that have sustained all of our reporting in the past, like when I worked at Fairfax, it's all dead now. I mean, no one's advertising in the same way Facebook and other organisations are taking away that profit that used to pay for the journalism. But I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we're actually, you know, and I think Revigel is is an example of this. We're reinventing journalism and technology is allowing us to do that. Now we had 11 and documents with the Panama Papers, and we were able to basically um, make all those documents available and searchable, and we were able to pipe them around the world to every journalist that looked at the documents. So it was almost like making them you could Google anything you wanted in the documents. But not only that we went st- stages further, we actually um, turned every name and address and offshore company, in this case, into a node. and the journalists were able to see very complex. Um, structures that they would never have been able to do 10 years ago or even five years ago. So I think it's all great. I think these days journalism has got to embrace technology because the technology that's killing us has actually got a chance to remake us, and I think that's what we're seeing here. And I think you're seeing a lot of um, non-profits in, 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 the, in the US, one of which we are as well, uh, basically learning how to experiment. And I think that's where a lot of the experimentation is being done at the moment. But it, it is, like to answer your question in a short way, it's actually making journalism easier, not harder.
0: So Siddharth, you've touched on the politics, but let's talk about that a little bit more. What happens when you know that there's a good story, but that the current politics will just be completely unreceptive? How much is that a consideration in what you choose to investigate?
3: Um, no, that that encourages us to do it. right? <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the downside is that, uh, very often, there is virtually no follow-up. So a story that we do, which is great, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, India's largest state is called Uttar Pradesh. Uh, it's, you know, um, home to nearly 100 million people. And they recently had elections where the party which is ruling at the national level, the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is right-wing party, won that election. And in the kind of bait-and-switch, they, 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 they wheeled out this very, very um, uh, sort of extreme politician, hate-mongering guy actually, who uh, was never declared as chief ministerial uh, material during the campaign. And he was wheeled out and presented to voters as the chief minister uh, after the election was was over. Uh, this is a guy who has had a 10-year or 15-year career not just delivering hate speeches against Muslims, but also involved. He has, a, he, he has a kind of a paramilitary or a kind of a volunteers organization that was involved in acts of violence. So we've, we looked into cases that had been filed against him over the years, and why these cases hadn't progressed, even though many of the cases were filed by, uh, you know, by rival parties. Uh, but it, it, so it, it emerged that at the end of the day, uh, there was all this great material uh, establishing his culpability, including material generated by, by the state police and the investigative arm of the state, uh, but which he now, as, as the executive head of the state, was in a position to suppress. So we got that material out and we ran these stories. Uh, I think it perhaps had an impact on the court. Uh, th- so the public airing of this material maybe emboldened uh, judges to, to hold the line, but there was zero follow-up from, from big media, uh, simply because uh, this particular politician, despite his horrible background, is being um, airbrushed and presented as a a man who stands for development and growth. So that's the most frustrating part, but uh, at the end of the day, we've now learned to live with that, that there are going to be stories that we do uh, and that we have to do because of their public importance, uh, but which will not be followed through by by other media. When other media follows through, the impact is obviously much greater, but I I, I would imagine that even so, there is an impact even if you don't see it immediately.
0: Kate, we spoke yesterday and you told me that you had put a lot of effort into trying to expose what a shonk Eddie Obeid was before people took any notice. So what do you think changed that finally made this story get as big as it got?
1: Look, I think the fact that ICAC um, decided to investigate and it, it is one of those frustrating things like, you, you know, you write us another story about Eddie Obeid and you think, this time, you know, someone's going to follow it up. This time, this is really going to do it dead silence, nothing, and you just think, oh, you know, what is it going to take for people to realise what kind of person we're dealing with here? And it was only having the Independent Commission Against Corruption do not one inquiry. They ended up doing five inquiries that touched on Eddie Obeid. Mm -hmm. And um, they were basically things that we had revealed, um, you know, over the years, but it was still... That ability of an organisation to get tax records, to get behind um, trust companies, that's one thing that impedes investigative journalists is that you don't have access to those records unless someone leaks them to you. So in some cases you have to realise that there is a limit to your investigative journalism and you really do need a corruption body or the police to go... Um, that next step but I mean I think we are absolutely crucial in exposing what we can and giving impetus for other organisations to follow up on our work
0: all right now we are running on time and I'm aware that many of you uh, short of time not on time we're actually running a little late but I'm aware that many of you will have questions for the panel so I'll just ask one more question and then we'll open it up Aaron, Reveal is a weekly public radio show and podcast and it was America's first, American Public Radio's first investigative reporting show. Now, I'm a big podcast fan and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm not aware of anything really quite like it. Now, reporting for audio production is more resource intensive, I would say, than reporting for the written word. So why do you think audio as a medium is so successful in presenting investigative stories and what does it have to offer that the printed word doesn't?
4: Well, I actually think that all of the medium have something unique to offer. And I started my career in radio, uh, that I've worked a lot in print and television, and I love them all. And one of the things that we try to do uh, at uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting, which every media outlet is trying to do now in one way or another, is take advantage of everything that each of these platforms have to offer and give people uh, multiple cracks at the same story and multiple ways into the same story. I mean, I, I think that reach, I mean, I think that radio can give you tremendous reach, especially if you have a national program. You can get people in their cars. You get people while they're brushing their teeth and taking a shower. Um, that's really great. You can introduce them to people. Um, and I don't actually find, at least for myself as a reporter, that it's a huge lift um, because all I have to do is take my tape recorder with me you know, and record everything, and then the bigger lift actually comes when I get back to the office and I have to conceptualize the way that I'm going to tell the story across the different platforms and say, well, in the radio, I might really focus on this one character, but in the print story, I'm going to write a very traditional news lead, but they're both going to actually be about the same thing.
0: Right, and so Reveal does have the podcast, the website, and a very active social media feed. So what are the numbers in terms of engagement with each one of those?
4: Well, I mean, the reach on the radio show is the highest, run over 400 radio stations now. We have an over-the-air audience of over a million people, and we have uh, about 300,000 uh, downloads on our podcast uh, each week. But... The thing that concerns me a little bit about radio is that it's still, even though it's very shareable now with podcasting, it still can be very ephemeral. Um, and uh, and, and print, offers, um, print offers the ability to quickly read and click and share, uh, especially data, right? Which data is almost impossible on the radio. And video offers something which is the person can sit there and it's the most, I think, immersive because you have somebody's full attention. They're sitting there watching it. Um, and so uh, to the extent to which uh, we can work across all those platforms ourselves or partner with somebody else, uh, you know, not necessarily on the scale of the Panama Papers, but on a smaller scale to uh, make sure that this information is conveyed in a variety of ways, that's, that's the winner. You know, especially now that the audience is so fragmented. You know, the idea that we are going to hit everyone who needs this story with our news product um, is just laughable. And it's the same for pretty much everyone in the world, except for The New York Times and two or three other outlets.
0: All right. I think we have time for a couple of questions. And some mics, perhaps. Yes. Uh, There's one down here. Oh, yeah, or here first.
2: Um, hmm. Okay. Um, I'm from the ABC. I'm interested, you just touched on it, Aaron, and also from Jared, on to hear from you about collaboration. Um, I've been involved in a number of collaborations at the ABC, which sometimes, to be honest, are quite fraught. They're fine, journalist to journalist, but once you get up the chain of command, it's like, oh, well, we're a paper, we want to run it on Saturday, we want to run it in the morning, we want to run it in the evening, and... And, and also about kind of, I guess, their exclusivity, even though I've found whenever we have done one, we get more traffic to both outlets, mm-hmm. you know, because the story just is everywhere. So the level of interest is magnified. And I'm kind of interested to hear about what, what you think the future of collaboration is, whether people are becoming a little bit more relaxed about it and how to really, really make it work as well, perhaps, you know, cross-print, TV, radio. Do you want
5: to take it? Oh, Look, I, you know, we, we have the same issue. In fact, we've got multiplied because, I mean, we find that um, every one of our partners have got a different day that they want it, they've got a different time of the day, they've got, you know, every... every need. I think the, big, the, the most important lesson we've learned is setting the rules from the beginning. So when you enter into the collaboration, you set the rules for the reporters that then become cast in stone by the time it gets to the editors. So we'll walk in there with a very clear plan. I, I, I think your point of greater audience for both is true. We've found that in fact, if anything, we're magnifying the audience. You know, when we did the Panama Papers, uh, Panorama, which is the BBC kind of equivalent of Four Corners here, they weren't able to publish their story until the Monday. We, we published on the Sunday night. So they had to wait 24 hours, but they still had the highest rating show because of the audience build from working with The Guardian, which was their print partner in the UK, but also working with um, BBC Radio, which really built that story up. I think you've just got to do it a few times to, to teach the bosses that it actually works. I mean, I remember when I went over to, to ICIJ, you know, six years ago and trying to convince these media organisations that this was a good idea, I got nothing but resistance from the bosses, and eventually I learned that if I went to the reporters, that the reporters can do the selling for you, so deal with the reporters but set the rules in stone from the beginning, and then by the time the bosses hear about it, they've got no choice because you've already signed the dotted line.
4: That, when I heard this about the Panama Papers, I said, oh, no wonder it worked so well, you know, because you guys, uh, I think another key uh, is that um, you worked with the reporters who really, you knew they would do well with this particular material. And I think that was also... Uh, sometimes when things are managed from the top down, you end up with maybe the wrong journalist. Hmm. Uh, but you knew that you had journalists who, like, knew this topic and basically liked each other.
5: But we also learned the lesson of doing it wrong, I think. So we have to admit that we get things wrong until we get them right. But, yeah, I think the reporters care about stories, and they're passionate about the story. So they will go in and do the cell for you in the organisation. I do think there's a, there are more collaborations happening now because the media organisations are struggling and they're more willing to listen to new ways of doing things, and I think that's what you're seeing. It's definitely the future, but of course, I'm a a great convert to it, so I'm always going to say that, but I think you'll also find it is good.
0: All right, now we've just got two minutes left, so we might get two short questions in, Uh, if anyone has one. There was one down here in the front, yeah?
5: Uh, hi thanks for the talk it was fantastic um, I just wanted
4: to ask in terms of freedom of information you know I'm sure you guys have gotten a lot of tips that you've you've needed to you know get information from from governments and things like that I wonder if you've had any tips for for you know how you approach that especially when it may be information that uh, a particular body might
2: not want out there
1: well uh, look one of the secrets is um, going on a massive fishing expedition, is more likely to result in being rebuffed. You need to be um, fairly specific about what you're looking for because otherwise they say to you, that's going to cost you $30,000 because it's going to take five people working 300 hours each to find it. So um, if you can, try to get specific information to target what you're looking for. But I think generally, People are not (laughs) keen, you know, and you also have to be prepared to fight it in court. If you're not satisfied, um, you can challenge it um, in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and more people should be doing that.
4: I think the... um you know, uh, developing human sources is really great. Even if you have to file a Freedom of Information Act request, if you can then call your human source and have your human source actually walk the document over to the Freedom of Information Act officer, and then you can call the Freedom of Information Act officer back, and you can be like, I I think this might already be on your desk, right? Like, playing these sorts of games uh, is is really helpful. Um, And then, um, you know, another thing uh, that is often helpful is don't be afraid to go with what you have, you know? So, you know, I've, I don't sit around waiting to get everything. As soon as I get something, then I'm publishing and I'm raising public consciousness, and then they kind of, like, learn that they can't get away with it because the chance that that document will actually be leaked to me anyway goes way up.
1: And I'd just like to pick up on that as a general proposition. You know, nowadays you don't have to wait until you've got the whole picture. Sometimes you have to say to yourself, "Okay, I'm going to go with what I've got. It's not what I initially started out hoping for. But often um, just the ability to put, you know, if you've got more information, please send it, is now providing people with a new impetus to give you the rest of the picture. So don't be uh, afraid to just run with what you've got, even if it's not the whole picture the first time round.
0: All right, I think we might have to leave it there, unfortunately. Jaron, Aaron, Kate, Siddharth, thank you so much for your time. That's it for Fourth Estate this week. This was a special broadcast from the Walkley's 2017 Storyology Conference. As always, stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is Forth Estate AU. I'm Olivia Rosenman. Thank you for listening and don't forget to tune in next week.